So Christmas is the time of year where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And what we're celebrating is Jesus, God's entrance into the world, God becoming man, which is known as the incarnation of Christ. And so we're celebrating that incredible event where Jesus, not for himself, although he did receive glory in all that he did, but for others, came into this world and not only entered the world for the sake of others, he lived his life for the sake of others. He is the model of humility, the model of servant leadership, the model of the life of a servant. And so when we're talking about the incarnation of Christ, we're talking about all of those things. A miraculous event, the birth of Christ, certainly, but the fact that he did what he did with the, the end goal in mind of giving his life, which is the greatest, the most selfless act of all time, giving his life to pay the price for sins. So in doing this, we see in the incarnation that Christ empties himself. And what we understand or what we should understand about that is that Jesus surrendered some of his privileges in heaven in order to bring to us the power of salvation. And, and what we're talking about here in emptying himself, in surrendering to God's will, God the Father's will, and submitting and taking the form of a servant, we're talking about a concept called subtraction by addition, which, you know, sounds a little bit crazy, I know, but it is a, it, it is, for me, one of the best ways to understand what happened when Jesus became man, because there are a lot of things about that that we can't understand fully, but we can gain a better understand with this concept of subtraction by addition. And I, I want to kind of illustrate that to start our message today. Uh, granted, this is you know, there's no way to fully understand how Jesus set aside some of his divine attributes, how he emptied himself, and also understand that this is a little bit, uh, how should we say, uh, cruel. Um, uh, you'll see what I mean in a minute, uh, the, the concept, but it does support the point, okay? I've got this little figure. Uh, he's uh, from one of our nativities, so hopefully he'll survive this. I don't know, uh, but he's a little fife player. I don't know, uh, for the sake of our illustration here, we'll call him Fred, okay? Hopefully, I'm not offending anybody who might be named Fred, but we're going to call him Fred, all right? So, Fred, let's pretend Fred is alive. Obviously, he's not, and I would never do what I'm about to do to someone who's alive unless they made me really mad. No, I'm kidding. Um, <clears throat> but we're going to pretend that Fred's alive. He's breathing, okay? Now, now, what do you need to breathe? You need lungs. You need oxygen, right? You've got to have air. And so we're going to put Fred in this little, our larger vase here, and, and, and we're going to do something very simple to Fred that if he were truly alive, Fred would not like, all right? But it, but it illustrates the concept of subtraction by addition. I'm simply going to add water to this vase. Poor Fred. No, don't do it. It's okay, Fred. Um <laughs> So I'm just adding water now. His head's still above water. Sorry, Fred. But pretty soon, 
Fred will be totally submerged in the water. And by adding the water, what do I do to poor Fred here? Fred is dead. Not yet. He can still be holding his breath. I'll rescue Fred in a minute, okay? So that y'all won't sit here and worry about this not real figure in the, for the rest of the sermon. But it illustrates the point, right? By adding water, I subtract Fred's ability to breathe. It's the concept of subtraction by addition. Adding water, he's submerged, he doesn't have oxygen, his lungs will fill with water, he can't breathe. And that's kind of gives you a picture with that in mind. Because I do believe that understanding that concept maybe not drowning someone, but understanding the concept of subtraction by addition is key to understanding the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, which is what we're going to be talking about. Now, for those of you that are worried about Fred, here you go. All right, I should have brought a towel up here. Now my hands are wet, but y'all just, we're good. All right, it's all good. The incarnation of Christ, more specifically the concept of subtraction by addition. Now, Paul Enns said this in his Moody Handbook of Theology. He said, about the incarnation of Christ, the emptying was not a subtraction, but an addition. The emptying of Christ was taking on an additional nature, a human nature, with its limitations. Now, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today. Paul talks about this. He speaks about the incarnation of Christ. Now, Paul first came to Philippi about 52 AD. He developed a very close relationship with the Philippians. A few years ago, we went through the book together. And we know, if you know anything about Philippians, he had a unique relationship. He loved all the churches that he started, that he ministered to. But the Philippians, he and the Philippians had a unique, special relationship. Matter of fact, they were the only church he received gifts from. And, and part of Philippians is him thanking them for a gift that was brought to him by Epaphroditus. So that's part of the letter. He's writing this letter to the Philippians to thank them for the gift. And other, you know, they had supported him in other ways. But he's also writing them to encourage them to promote unity in the church. This church that he loved so much, there were divisions in the church, and, and that broke Paul's heart. And he's, he's trying to encourage them to maintain unity, uh, to serve one another, to love one another, because one of the keys to unity is that each follower of Christ, we're focused on Christ, but we're also modeling Christ, and in and, and modeling Christ, we're putting the needs of others above our own. And, and Paul knew that this is what they needed to do. So he takes this, this important doctrine. He takes this concept of subtraction by addition. He takes the incarnation of Christ and the life of Christ. And he uses that as Philippians, this is your example. What Jesus did in coming to earth. What Jesus did in his life. He did everything for the sake of others. He did it. In humility, he didn't look out for his own interests when he laid down his life. He was laying down his life to free others, to free you and I from sin. He's saying, model Christ. Have your attitude as that of Christ. He encourages them to be like Christ and thinking of others before themselves. Let's read verses 1 through 4 together. <clears throat> if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, 
intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not for his own interests, but the interests of others. So he opens immediately with and gives you the idea that, that they are more concerned about themselves than they are others. And that's one of the issues here. He's saying you don't need to be concerned with yourself as much as you are with others. Put others above yourselves. And yes, this is a letter to the Philippians at a specific time in history. But this is also recorded in God's word for you and I as well. This is a challenge for all of us to think of others before ourselves. To put others ahead, others' interests ahead of ourselves. But how do we do this? How, how do we model Christ in this way? Well, we follow his example. That's where we start and really where we end. We follow the example of Christ. He came to earth. He was born as a human, fully God, fully man. But in doing so, he emptied himself for the sake of others. He gave up the beauty of heaven for the brokenness of earth. He gave up the supernatural presence and worship of angels for the sinfulness of man. Why did he do this? And yes, he did it for his glory, but why did he do this? For God so loved the world. He did it out of love for his children, for his creation. So let's look. Paul's response. He encourages us to make your own attitude, your own mind out of Christ. So we're going to look at the steps that Jesus took to bring salvation to mankind so that we will better know how to do that, to make our own attitude, our own lives the same as Christ. Step number one is this. Jesus took a step of submission. In becoming man, in being born, he took a step of submission. Look at verses 6 and 7. The first part of seven, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Existing in the form of God, that phrase, it doesn't mean that he was like God, that he looked like God or was a form in, in, in terms of a copy or a replica. No, that word, that phrase actually is talking about how he continued in existence what he was previously. He was God before he became man. He was God while he was man. He's still God. I mean, he couldn't have performed miracles. He couldn't have forgiven sins. He couldn't have known the minds and hearts of people. And most importantly, he could not have made the sacrifice for sin had he not been God. Existing, that word existing is important as well. This gives the idea of a continuation of a previous existence. So existing in the form, that's where we get the understanding. It wasn't that he stopped being God. He was God and stopped and was a a cheap imitation. No, he was God and he continued to exist as God as he was in his previous existence. It's the essence. This word has the idea of being the essence of a person's nature. It's the part of you and the part of me that's unalterable, unchangeable. So he didn't change who he was in terms of being God when he became man. The form of God, that phrase refers to an outward manifestation of an inward reality. So the idea is that before the incarnation and from eternity past, 
He was God. After the incarnation as man, he continued to be God. And then after his death, burial, and resurrection, he continues to be God and will for all of eternity. He is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And and if he had ever stopped being God, the Trinity would have ceased to exist. And that's not possible because God is eternal. And that would have affected that. So he never, there was never a point where Jesus was not God. Paul expressed this idea, this truth, in Colossians 1.15, when he said he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in talking about Christ, John opens up the Gospel of John, verses 1 and 2, chapter 1, with, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus was the Word, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then in verse 14, John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He never ceased being God. Jesus Himself said in John 8, 58, Truly I I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And that caused all sorts of Nice responses from the Pharisees because there was no mistake. He's saying, I'm God, because he was, he is. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3, tells us, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Sustaining all things by, the power, by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So let's just say it this way, kind of nutshell here. In coming to earth, Jesus never surrendered his deity. He simply added humanity with its limitations. And he's God. He could do that voluntarily, which he did. Subtraction by addition. He did choose to limit some aspects of who he was, who he is, to become, he had to, to become man, but he chose to do that. But it didn't, he didn't cease being God. He was, is, and always will be God. Yet he did not regard, Paul says, equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. You know, he, he continued to be God. He refused, though, to hold on to his divine prerogatives. He never denied or minimized his deity, being God. He never used his power, though, or authority for personal advantage. He willfully submitted to the Father. It was his choice. He willingly suffered the worst possible death, the worst imaginable death, by choice, to pay the price for sins. He, he willingly He was humiliated by his choice. No one forced him to do any of that. He did it by choice. He suffered humiliation rather than use his powers as God to go against the purpose of God the Father to save himself or to spare himself the humiliation and the suffering. He did it by choice. Why did he do it? Because the price was too high. The cost, there was too much at stake. Salvation was at stake. And God desired salvation 
to be offered to his children that he created, that he loved, who were lost in sin. He desired salvation more than he desired his own comfort. He willingly submitted. He entered this world on his own, voluntarily. He set aside some of his attributes, taking on humanity, so that you and I could have the opportunity to be saved. What did he do? He emptied himself. That's important. This is at the heart. This word is at the heart of the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. It emphasizes the importance of this doctrine, emphasizes Jesus' willingness to give up heaven to come to earth. So what does he empty himself of? When it says he emptied, what did he empty himself of? Well, let's think about that. Not his deity, we've established that. He didn't cease being God. As a human, he's fully God. He claimed about that about himself. Jesus coexists with God the Father. And again, as part of the Trinity, if he ever ceased being God, then God would cease being God. So you can't believe that and believe that God is who he says he is. He never ceased being God. He definitely emptied himself, though, of some, some of his divine attributes, like omnipresence, for example. I mean, human beings can't be two places at once. He chose to temporarily give that up. He emptied himself of the worship of the saints and angels in heaven for a time in, in their presence. He traded them for the misunderstanding, denials, unbelief, false accusations, and unimaginable persecution by sinful men. So when you think about it like that, he gave up a lot there, even temporarily. He set aside at least an aspect of his divine authority. He says this himself in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. Well, he's got him, do whatever he wants, right? But no, he set that aside. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him, God the Father, who sent me. He did this in submission to God the Father. And yes, there within the Trinity is this complex relationship, a hierarchy. We've talked about that before, but even more so becoming man, Jesus set aside some of his divine authority. On the night he was betrayed and arrested, he said, my father, if it be possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. He emptied himself temporarily of the unique, intimate, face-to-face relationship with God the Father. Yes, he still had relationship with God the Father, but he separated himself in coming to earth. And then that climax, of course, on the cross when he took on the sin of man and cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When God temporarily, but still very much, turned his back on his son because he took on the sin of man. So he emptied himself of that temporarily. While being interviewed, you know, we, we, when, we, when we think about this, <coughs> a question comes to mind. How can you and I, as recipients of gr- grace, this gift that Jesus has given, how could any of us refuse to even show the slightest bit of humility and concern for others in light of all that we've talked about here, of all that Jesus did for us. His sacrifice, his willingness to give up 
all of that to suffer, to die an agonizing death for the sake of forgiveness of sins, how could we even think about putting our own needs selfishly above the needs of others and the desires of God? Yet we're all guilty of that, myself included. And evidently, this was a problem in the Philippian church. And Paul's saying, hey, y'all need to think about what Jesus, what he has done, the model, the example that he set. And we're called to nothing less than following his example, modeling him. There was an interview, a, a job counselor was asked about the secret of his success as a, as a job counselor. This was his answer. He said, if you want to find out what a worker is really like, don't give him responsibilities, give him privileges. If you really want to find out what they're made of. Most people, he said, can handle responsibilities if you pay them enough. But it takes a real leader to handle privileges. A leader will use his privileges to help others and build the organization. A lesser man will use his privileges to promote himself. You and I have received a lot of privileges as followers, as children of God. Can we all agree on that, those of us who are saved? I mean, the the spiritual privileges we have far outweigh any persecution, any ridicule we'll receive as being Christians. We've received an inheritance in Christ, riches in Christ, a relationship with Him, purpose in life, and of course, eternity to look forward to. And so the test of a real follower of Christ, a real leader in Christ, is how are we using those spiritual privileges? Are we using those to build the kingdom or to take advantage of? Are we using those to build others up, to reach others with the gospel, or to just soak them in ourselves and to build up ourselves? Next, Jesus took a step of humanity. Jesus took a step of humanity. The last part of verse 7 and into verse 8. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found, verse 8, in the appearance of a man. Let's start with that word bondservant. It literally means slave. Jesus willingly took the form of a slave. And that same word, form, is the same word used previously. So just as he fully existed in the form of God, was fully God, he now existed. He also existed fully in the form of a bondservant. He didn't just look like a slave and act like a slave. He was really a slave, a bondservant. He became a slave in its fullest sense. That's the idea here. Also, he didn't give up any of his divine nature in becoming a slave, which is a great paradox, but nonetheless is the reality. Jesus did not exchange the form of God for the form of a slave. He manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. He was fully both. My mind can't comprehend that, but it's reality. It's truth. God's word says it. A bondservant owned nothing. Not even the clothes on his back. Now, Jesus owned his clothes, but he didn't own a house. He didn't own a bed. He didn't own any property, no gold, no jewels, no business, no boat, no horse. He even had to borrow a donkey when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He owned nothing. He had nothing to call his own. 
He was truly a bondservant. He refused any property, any advantages, any special service to himself. Jesus, who was in the beginning with God, John chapter 1, and through whom all things came into being, John chapter 1, claimed as his own nothing that he created. It's amazing. Another significant point here. A bondservant was required to carry other people's burdens. And boy, didn't Jesus do that for us. He carried the burden of sin, the burden no other man could carry. For all who would believe, Jesus carried your sin burden. He was not only Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, but he was a man among men and a servant among servants. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was made, let's go back to that, he was made in likeness of men. Verse 7 and 8, being found in appearance as a man. God made him through the virgin birth. He was, he was not a clone. He was exactly like other human beings in his makeup. He wasn't just appearing like a man, but being God, he was fully man. That's what that means, in appearance as a man. He was, too, he was so obviously like other human beings that even his family and disciples would have never known he was God without him telling them and without the miracles and all of the other things that he did. And they, that he was so much human being that even with all his miracles, his enemies refused to believe that he was God. To them, he was not only just a human, he was the worst kind of human being. He was a blasphemer. That's how human he was, yet he was still God. As a bondservant, though, Jesus served others more than any other servant or slave in the history of mankind. And no other human being can claim what Jesus claims and what he was willing to and able to do for humanity. He was fully man, but not merely a man. And in doing this, he was an example for his disciples and an example for us. Look at Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is living it, humility, and he's telling his disciples, this is what you're going to be called to do. And he's telling us, this is what we're called to do, humbling ourselves. But we will be exalted by God if we do so. Jesus fully participated in our human experience. As a man, he took upon himself the frailties, the limitations, the problems, the sufferings of humanity that are all a result of the fall of sin, which all of those are. He ended all of it, he endured all the, 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 the terrible earthly consequences of being a human and fallen creation. He got hungry, he got thirsty, he got tired, he suffered pain, he felt sadness, he was tempted. He knows our fears. He knows our limitations. He understands. He can empathize with all of our struggles because he experienced them himself as a human being. Furthermore, as a human, he was subject to physical death. In fact, it was only through his death that he could fulfill his divine purpose of redemption, Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. 
so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. He was a man among men and a servant among servants. And, and don't miss the importance of this concept. This is how we know he loves us. This is how we know that he cares for us, that he has compassion for us. He knows how we feel. He was willing to subject himself to all that fallen creation has to offer, all the negative things. He has compassion for us. He sympathizes, but he doesn't just sympathize. He can empathize with us because he's experienced it. He knows our struggles. Don't fall victim to the belief that God is some distant being that created you and then just left you on your own to fend for yourself. There are people who believe that. Maybe you do today. Don't fall victim to that. The incarnation of Christ, his willingness to enter this world, to endure all that this world has to offer, and to suffer a more painful death than you and I could ever imagine so that we could be free from sin, proves that God not only cares, he cares more than you could ever possibly imagine. And that he, not only does he desire to be involved in your life, he was willing to enter this world and be a part of your life and my life. And he's still here in the form of the Holy Spirit. And if you know him, you know fellowship with him. And you know God is not some distant being who could not care less. He is a close and personal Savior who desires a close and personal relationship with you. Third, Jesus took a step of obedience. Humility, humanity, and obedience. He models obedience for us as he does does so many other things. Look at verse 8. He humbled himself, Philippians 2, verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So now the emphasis moves from Jesus' nature and form to his personal attitude. He humbled himself. He lowered himself, not only relative to God, but relative to other human beings. And this humility is seen, of course, most dramatically in his death on the cross. He was mocked. He was falsely accused. He was beaten. He was spat on. Part of his beard was plucked out. He was whipped and nailed to a cross, publicly humiliated in every sense of the word. He humbled himself, and, and no one forced him onto the cross. I've told this story before, but I, you know, back when Easter pageants were huge, um, whenever we would have these Easter pageants, I would always get picked for something. Like one year I was a possessed person, and then one year I was a soldier. I don't know what they were trying to tell me, but I never got picked to be like you know, Jesus or one of his followers. I was always somebody that did something bad or had something severely wrong with them. I don't know. But one year, I was a soldier, and I was part of, uh, uh, myself and one of the other soldiers were, uh, our responsibility was to be there to place Jesus on the cross and to simulate nailing him to the cross, which was pretty involved. I mean, this was a pretty involved production, but the guy that was playing Jesus had played Jesus in some some uh, pageants uh, that were known well, and he, he wasn't a member of our church. He came in, and he played Jesus, and the church put on the production with him. And before we started, he was very 
specific and very intent about one specific thing when it came to the scene where he laid down the cross. He said, don't in any way, shape, form, or fashion push me onto that cross. He said, I want to communicate with everything that we do that Jesus voluntarily laid down on that cross and no one forced him there. Even the little, the smallest details. He didn't want us to put our hands on him at all. He laid down to show what Jesus did. And that just made an impression on me because that's exactly what he did. Those soldiers did not force him. He could have gotten out of that if he had wanted to. Yeah, he could have called down legions of angels if he wanted to. But no, he voluntarily obeyed the will of the Father and laid down his life in the most agonizing death possible to pay the price for sins. And this humility is a model for all of us. He suffered the most gruesome death known to man, death on a cross. I mean, think about it. He could have been beheaded like John the Baptist, but no, he was crucified. And for the Jews, anyone who was crucified was cursed. It was all intentional, a part of the plan of God. And if you were crucified, you were cursed. Deuteronomy 21, 33. And this was the reason Jesus as Messiah was such a stumbling block for the Jews. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. They couldn't get in their minds, how could he be God? How could he be the Messiah and be cursed? But this is God's perfect plan. Think about it. He was cursed. He became a curse so that you and I wouldn't have to. We were cursed by sin. Everything about the crucifixion, the incarnation, the life of Jesus, the crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, it all is part of God's perfect plan, including the manner in which Jesus died. It was the only acceptable way for him to die, to fully picture, to fully encompass the seriousness of our condition and what we were being rescued from in sin. The curse of Deuteronomy meant being outside of God's covenant, which you and I were in sin. Some of you may be today in sin, banned from his people, banned from blessing. And so Jesus had to become that so that you and I could be once again received inside God's covenant, a new covenant, access to him, access the gift of eternal life to all that he has to offer and access to his fellowship and blessings. Jesus became a curse so that you and I wouldn't have to remain a curse in sin. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What better way to illustrate that than crucifixion? Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. In God's infinite wisdom, crucifixion was the only way, the only way, not just a good way, not so good, not just a good illustration, but the only way for redemption, for fallen, sinful, and condemned mankind. John Calvin wrote this. He said, for by dying in this way, he was not only covered with ignominy, shamed in the sight of men, but also accursed in the sight of God. It is assuredly such an example of humility as ought to absorb the attention of all men. Does it absorb your attention? It is impossible to explain in words suitable to its greatness. Paul Reese wrote this. He humbled himself. Don't forget this. 
across Paul to his dear friends, the friends of his at Philippi. Don't forget this when the slightest impulse arises to become self-assertive and self-seeking and so to break the bond of your fellowship with one another. That's what Paul's saying here. When you get the urge to be self-absorbed, think about what Jesus did in all of its fullness and all of what it, it means and represents. He humbled himself. No one humbled him. No one forced him. From heaven to earth, from glory to shame, from master to servant, from life to death, he sacrificed so that we could be sanctified in him. And this is the attitude that you and I are to have. The example that we are to follow. Serving others is not only something we're asked to do as Christians, it is our duty, it is our responsibility and obedience in following the example of Jesus Christ. Counting others as more significant than ourselves should be the constant and sincere attitude of our hearts. Looking out for the interests of others should describe every person who's a part of the body of Christ. Now, nobody says it's easy. I mean, I'm, I'm just as selfish as anybody else. I'm a human being like all of you. And naturally, we all tend to be selfish. This is why Paul is having to remind them to do it, because we all struggle with this. And you're not evil if you struggle with this. But it's still what we're called to do. It's still our responsibility as Christians. Dr. J.H. Jowett said, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. It's going to cost you something. Salvation is free. You can't earn it. But living for Christ means taking up your cross daily and following him. It costs something, but it's worth it. The blessings we'll receive from our service for Christ will far outweigh any sacrifice that we have to make along the way. It's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life that the more we give, the more we'll receive from him. The more we sacrifice, the more God blesses. Now I want to show you a picture of a lady by the name of Jessica Council. This is, happened several years ago in 2010. Somewhere around August of 2010, Jessica got a sore throat. It's not uncommon this time of year, right? Some of you know what that's all about. But she got a sore throat, didn't think much of it. But after a few weeks, the sore throat wouldn't go away, and she got concerned. About a month passed, and so she went to the doctor. And it was also about this time that she suspected she was pregnant. So Jessica goes to her doctor. Her doctor examines her, and he says, you know, it's probably just a thyroid gorder. It's probably nothing to worry about. We're going to run some tests, make sure everything's okay, which they did. They ran tests. Tests came back, and they said, yep, nothing to worry about. That's all it is. Well, the problem was they read the tests wrong. A few months passed. got to be November, and she suddenly, not only was she still struggling with a sore throat, suddenly she couldn't breathe. So much so that they took her to the ER and she had to be put on a ventilator. Well, it's at that time that they realized the doctors had read the test wrong and she had cancer. And, of course, it had spread by this point. But it was also at that time that not only she didn't just suspect she was pregnant anymore, she knew she was pregnant. So immediately the doctors start talking about treatment, Jessica and her husband Clint. And they're both Christians, staunchly pro-life, but they have a decision to make. Does Jessica undergo treatment and risk the baby's life, or does she forego treatment and most certainly, most likely die? Well, according to Clint, Jessica didn't hesitate for a moment. She wouldn't have any treatment. She was, not, she was going to give this baby every chance of survival. So time goes on, and her health deteriorates, and on February the 5th, 
Jessica goes to sleep and never wakes up. She's still alive. She's in the hospital. And on February the 6th, Clint gives the okay for the doctors to deliver, and little Jessie was born. Jessica never woke up. She died soon after that. You know, what I love about this story is it's a great example, (laughs) number one, of the greatest sacrifice, the most the most perfect display of love. Greater love has no man than he that would give his life for a friend. It's a great example of that. But if you read the story, Clint, Jessica doesn't, didn't hesitate for a moment. And he fully agreed with the decision. He's a follower of Christ. He knew it was the right thing to do. But he, he was honest about his struggles in that. Clint talks about, you know what? The only person I'm called to love more than my kids is my wife. And that's true, men. We are called to love our wives. Next to our relationship with God, your wife is number one. You're called to lay down your life for her. And he said, I struggled with that. I struggled with allowing my wife, watching my wife go through that. And yes, it was the right decision, but it was agonizing, he said. I'm supposed to protect her. I'm supposed to give my life for her. And, and while the reason I, I, I like that, not that I enjoy that, but I like that part of the story is that it highlights the struggle of living your life as a sacrifice to the Lord and a sacrifice to others. But Jessica laid down her life for her child. Greater love has no man or woman than that. And we see these stories and we're in awe, right? But guess what? That's exactly what Jesus did for you and me. He gave his life voluntarily so that you and I could have a chance to live. And he didn't just do it for one of his children. Salvation is available to all who will come to him in repentance and receive that gift. He's not going to force you. He's not going to make you, but he offers it freely. That's why he came. That's why we're celebrating Christmas. That's why it's the most wonderful time of the year. Not because of eggnog and chocolate goodies. Because Jesus came to this earth and lived a sinless life and made the sacrifice that no one else could make to pay the price for our sins. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you humbled by the truth of your incarnation. All of what it means, which, some of which we can't understand. But we understand enough to know that it was a miracle and that no one could do what you did. You gave your life so that we could live. And the first question we each should ask is, are we secure in our salvation? Some of us, we know we are. We're pursuing you. We're following you, not perfectly, but obediently daily. But maybe there's somebody here today, as I'm talking about this gift, maybe you've brought them under conviction, and they've come to a realization that they've never had before, that you were willing to do what no one else could do, that you gave your life so that they could be free from sin. And Father, we know all they have to do is cry out to you and invite you into their lives, admit that they, like all of us, have sinned and that you died for their sins, that you were raised from the dead and are alive today, and ask you to come into their life and forgive them of sin. For those of us who are your children, are we living our lives? Do we have the same mind, the same heart, the same attitude? Are we following the example that you set for us, Jesus?
on this earth, living a life of humility, a life of a servant, a slave, not pursuing our own agenda, our own needs, our own will, but pursuing your will and the needs of others, the interests of others, putting others above ourselves. Are we modeling your example? Are we following you, truly taking up our cross daily and following you? None of us are perfect. We've all fallen short in that. But our lives should be a trajectory upward in terms of obedience and being, becoming like you. And if there's something that needs to change in my heart, in any of our hearts, show us right now in this moment. And Lord, give us the courage to respond to you in obedience. Give us the faith that we need to follow you. Lord, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to respond to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?